<clears throat> I'd encourage you to open them up. We'll be reading just a few moments, verses 10 through verse 20 for our text this morning. Matt, thank you for leading us before the Lord in worship. It's beginning to sound a lot like Christmas. And I sense the excitement, just like the murmur amongst you, as you are nigh under the time of celebrating the birth of Christ. We look forward to a wonderful, full weekend next weekend as we have several services on uh, Sunday, 9 o'clock and 6 o'clock, and the brass band. Thank you, um, Brian, and the rest. Uh, Bill, for your leadership in the brass band, brass ensemble, brass stuff over there that is oh so Christmassy. <clears throat> want to welcome every single one of you. If this is your first time here with us at Big Woods, a special welcome to you. Our prayer is that it will not be your last time at Big Woods. <clears throat> As we prepare our hearts, and thank you, Pastor Robbie, for just directing our attention on what we are going to remember and celebrate and commemorate in just a few moments through the communion table. May we even now bow our heads and go to the Lord as we seek his blessing and guidance, and most importantly at this moment, his wisdom as we open up and learn from his word together. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? <clears throat> Excuse me. Father, we are most grateful for this, this time that you have given to us to gather in your house. And we thank you, Lord, for the excitement of the celebration of the birth of our Savior, Jesus. Father, I thank you for every single person that is here today. And I'm fully aware of the challenges and the many moving parts and pieces just to come here. And I pray, Lord, that as we are now bowed in your presence, that we would feel, in a sense, the, the weight of your awesomeness, your sovereignty, and your glory. But Lord, not only that, but we also sense your closeness and your care for us as you've made each one of us in your image and you've given to us a clear purpose to live a life for you, not for ourselves. And Father, now as we have your word opened up before us, may it be a reminder, may it renew in our hearts, in the depths of our souls, and in our minds to seek you, to hear you, to trust you, and to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Father, I pray for individuals, perhaps even at this very moment, that are just, just in, in moments of, of terror with the unknown, what lies ahead. Moments of unrest, anxieties. And Father, I would pray that you would minister to us in the power and through the amazing work of your Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth, the meditations, my heart be pleasing unto you, O oh Lord. May this be for your glory and your glory alone. We ask this in the amazing and wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen and amen. 
<clears throat> several weeks ago, I asked Gene Beyer to preach for me, and he was in Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 through 28. That was back when we were learning about Noah. And he preached on this verse that Noah had planted a vineyard, he drank wine, and he got drunk. And as a result of his sons, both in the positive and the negative, his, their actions and reactions, Noah offers both cursing and blessing. A very tough text. I find that whenever I really get to a tough text, I quickly schedule a vacation, a conference, someplace for me to get to. Gene did a marvelous... That's not true. I preached on Hebrews 6 and Nephilim, other stuff, okay? Gene did a wonderful job. <clears throat> what a blessing it is to have an older, more mature brother in the Lord like Gene Beyer. I don't know if you realize it or not that retired pastors do not always have the greatest reputation of moving from what is referred to the pulpit to the pew because pastors have done it before they have been there and they know how a church should run yet with our brother gene as many of you know there is such grace and such humility and kindness and wisdom that I am so grateful for his example. But if you recall, as he taught on Noah, we learned that that event in Noah's life was clearly a mark on his character, a spiritual stumble, so to speak, a grave sin. Now, if you recall, that was the only blemish that we were ever introduced to as we learned about Noah. And if you recall as well, that was after God had used him greatly in building a place of salvation, the ark for he and his family. Today's text before us is so, so different because we are actually at the beginning of Abraham's called out life and he already blows it big time. You ever notice that scripture never ever hides the blemishes and the black eyes of his chosen? Personally, I am very, very thankful for that because I think all of us can identify. But most importantly, it reminds all of us that there is only one without blemish. There's only one who is perfect. May we always keep our eyes on the perfect one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's, let's read on here in this narrative and learn a what not to do from the life of Abram. Genesis chapter 12, we pick it up in verse 10. I'll read down through the end of the chapter, verse 20, the word of the Lord. <clears throat> now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman 
beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. Because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had the word of the lord okay so let's just backtrack just a little tiny bit here get a summary as far as what's going on and what has been going on in abram's life we know as we have learned already that abram's wife sarah is barren his destination that God gave to him was totally unknown. His father has recently died. His brother has died. He's now responsible for his nephew Lot and his entire family. He has left his what familiar surroundings and his kinfolk. And he literally has no home. He's been on this long, hot, dry, dusty, and dirty journey he gets to the land of canaan and we find out that there are enemies in the land who hate him and what now there was a famine in the land it seems like one of those guys you just don't want to hang around <clears throat> it seems like if you take a quick look of it he's just got like a bad stretch here going okay it's been bad luck He's probably got bad breath. It's all just bad for Abram. Yet what? He has been faithful. He has kept his eyes on the Lord. He has trusted God. He has obeyed God. He has worshipped God when it's hard to do. And I don't know about you, but I would tend to think, like, well, doesn't this guy get a little bit of a break here? Like, can't we just ease off him just a little bit? But do you realize this? And think of our own lives. Your life. My life. It's often in these hard moments that God challenges our faith. You realize it's in the hard moments. Not when things are going smoothly. It's the hard times that test our faith. 
in this particular case, it is a famine. Now, in the ancient Old Testament world, that does not mean that the prices are simply going up in the grocery store and you can't water your lawn or you can't wash your car. That's not what it means. No water means what? No crops at all. That means there's no food, which means what? Animals die. When animals die, people die. When people around you die, then what? You die. It is harsh and it is cruel. Robert Canlish comments, as if all this were not enough, even daily bread begins to fail him. What now is he to do? He has been steadfast. He has built an altar wherever he has gone. He has called on the name of the Lord. He has had all hazards about his faith and sought to glorify God. But it seems as if from very necessity he must at last abandon the fruitless undertaking. He is literally starved out of the land. End quote. Let me ask you this morning. Can you identify with Abram? You, you've trusted, okay? Like, I trust God. You're, you're here this morning. You, you've read the Bible. You have worshipped God. Like, you've checked all the boxes, and for some reason, you find yourself in this very moment. Everybody's clapping and celebrating for Christmas, and you're just not there. Because deep in your own heart and soul, you find yourself, what? In a dry and weary land. Just like this man. And what happens? What happens in the depths of our hearts and soul. Fear sets in. Like, what's, what's next? We don't sleep well. There's anxiety. There's, there's, there's panic. Like, this, we got to do something. This isn't working. And there's this, there's this sense of what? Like, why bother? Despair. And sometimes it is, it is the deepest of despair. Who really cares anyway? What, is it, what does it even matter? What plan do I have in the midst of this whole thing? There's moments and times that every single one of us can identify exactly and precisely with where Abram is at. Two simple things I want you to remember this morning. Hold on to these. Hold on to these. And this is not my word, okay? This comes from the word of God. So the authority goes way above me. Number one, remember this. Difficult circumstances are opportunities to trust God more and not less. Difficult circumstances are opportunities to trust God more and not less. Did anyone pick up on this when we were reading our text just a few moments ago? There seems to be one that is missing in the narrative. Since the very moment we have been introduced to Abram earlier on, what? There has been a steady diet of the Lord said, I will show you, I will make you, I will bless you, I will give you. The Lord appeared. 
Abram worshiped the Lord. What? Abram called out to the Lord. The Lord up to this point has made himself and his instruction very, very clear. And now suddenly, apart from one brief little mention of what? A reference inflicting hardship. It seems that God is strangely silent all of a sudden. He's quiet in the background. And Abram has moved himself to the forefront. And there's a lot of what? Me. So that what? My life will be saved. There's a lot of me talk. There's a lot of my talk. Abram, in a sense, is now making all the decisions. He's calling all the shots. Now, please hear me in this. In times of famine and fear, in the, the inevitable moments that we will face of hardship and heartache, when you find yourself in a dry and weary land, you can hold on to this truth. God doesn't need your help. In those moments, inevitably that what? They have either come into your life, you're in the midst of them, or they will come into your life. God does not need your help. Rather, it's in those moments, those precise moments, when you are just worn out, the end of the year, and you're like crawling to the finish line. You're wasted and terrified, and the storms and the waves of life have crashed upon you, this is the moment, more than ever before, you must trust. And we get it, like, okay, trust, just trust. Well, how do we do that? Like, I'm all willing, I'm in the front of the line here, I'm, I'm here, uh, you just must trust. Well, how do we just do this? I'm reminded of, arguably, one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. And I just identify with our dear brother, Mr. Foot in his mouth, the Apostle Peter. Oh, how I love the Apostle Peter. And I, and I was thinking this week as I was writing and, and kind of examining Abram's life, like this, this, like this isn't the first time that this has happened. There's other times that we've learned about this. Gospel of Ch Matthew in chapter 14, it says this. Remember, there, there's a storm and the guys are in the boat, the disciples are like terrified, like the way we feel. And they see this one walking towards them. Like, who's this? And they call out. And we know who it is. It's the Lord himself with them. And, and pick up this story here in Matthew chapter 14. So Peter got out of the boat. Just, just pause for a moment, okay? If you've ever really been in a bad storm on a sea or an ocean or even where the winds have like have chopped up on a lake, don't get out of the boat, okay? I love this guy. So Peter got out of the boat, and wait a minute, and he walked on the water. 
Okay, there's no ice skate action going on here. This is not frozen. Really what happened is that it's a very, very rare occasion. No, no, he's walking on the water towards the one who created it all and came to Jesus. Notice what happens though, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink he cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Just imagine the moment of desperation. Save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Like he had it. Like he was almost there. He's walking on top of the water, and then he begins to see, like, what is going on around me? And that's when he began to doubt. It's when Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and began to look at the wind and the waves around him. That's when he began to sink. That is exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing that we see this morning that is happening with Abram. And it is exactly the same thing that happens to us in these moments that none of us want to go through. Now, if you look at it, common sense, it may appear to be a wise decision with what Abram is doing. Common sense would say this. He's just kind of taking it on his own. But what we have to realize here is that he has not been instructed by God to go down to Egypt. He's not been instructed by God. And you will very, very quickly note here, as the story unfolds, Abram is borrowing trouble from tomorrow before tomorrow ever comes. What does Jesus teach us about that? Matthew chapter 6, do not be anxious for tomorrow. We keep our eyes on him, and he says, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble, which means what? You got enough going on right here. Don't you worry about that. Sarah, because you are so amazingly, stunningly gorgeous. Which let me remind you, gentlemen, this is what a perfectly wise and wonderful thing for you to regularly remind your wife of how beautiful she is. But let me tell you this, her beauty is not going to get you in trouble. And we can learn from that. Abram's entire plan is based on a what if, what if scenario. And, and take, it, take it from me, okay? There is no end game to that. I can very easily and quickly identify what? Creating scenarios and situations of the most likely outcome. This is, this is going to go bad. I know it. I just know this is going to go bad. And there's no end to that. What's happening is that, that we're actually trying to just get ahead of God. As if what? 
he's not fully aware. Well, just in case this thing goes south, we have to have a plan here. That's, that's, that's exactly what Abram did. Thus the reason for this charade. Say that you're my sister, that it may go well because of you. Now just pause for a moment. Little note bene here, okay? Remember this. We do know, because we have the fullness of Scripture, Abram's relation with Sarah. And we do know in Genesis chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, reveals that actually she was his half-sister. So at some level, which is not uncommon in ancient Old Testament times, okay? It's not uncommon. So in a sense, this is half true. But what he's really trying to communicate, what he's really trying to say is this. Don't you dare tell them that you're my wife. That's what he's trying to communicate. Hiding the full truth is still a lie. And I actually wrote in my notes, say that twice, like two times here. Well, there's like, it's, it's kind of like partially, no, 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 no. I feel like I'm talking to my 11-year-old child. No, no. Hiding the full truth is still a lie. The ninth commandment, just so I don't forget it, is written on what? Words I hold in my office that says this, you shall not bear false witness, period. And yes, I'm one step ahead of you. I am well aware, what about it, Rahab? Like we have Rahab. Joshua chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 11, she even makes the list. Remember this, we're well aware of Rahab. Okay? Did you see the people? I didn't see them. Remember, that is descriptive. That's not prescriptive. That's not how we're supposed to live. Let's trust God with the, with the fullness of his word when he says, you shall not bear false witness. What? God doesn't need your help. Our responsibility is to be truth tellers. A lack of faith which is demonstrated here by Abram, can easily lead to a lack of good judgment. A lack of trusting God can quickly and easily lead to what? Things that we should not be involved in. Deception, falsehoods, fibs, half-truths, little white lies. Allow me to, as graciously as I can, warn you upon Abram's example of a what not to do. Let me warn you of this. When you think for a moment that just may be a little bit of a fib, here's how I graciously warn you. Abram's example. Don't do it. Don't even go there. My dad raised me with these little tiny sayings. If in doubt, don't. Like if you're for a moment, like I don't know, maybe I could like kind of like just squeak by on this one. If in doubt, like if there's question on this, like you're not fully aware, you're not fully sure, don't. Why? Like why is this so important? Second thing I want you to remember in closing. 
<clears throat> dire consequences await when our words and actions do not reflect the holiness of God. <clears throat> dire consequences. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me? Why did you not tell me the truth that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. There is so much. I could, I could, I could preach just on that right there. There's so much here. Abram's lie obviously causes Sarah, who's been in the Pharaoh's home, causes Sarah to lie. And we've learned this, and we've heard this on multiple occasions. Sin always begets more sin. Also, we know that Abram's actions cause many people to suffer. This is a... This is totally, totally different outcome than Abram expected. Rather, rather than what Abram thought was going to happen, what Pharaoh was actually thinking was this. Oh, so if she's your sister, then obviously you don't mind me taking her for my wife. After all, I'm the most powerful man in the known world. If she was your wife, I would never dare do that. I couldn't have done that. And so here's what? Here's gifts, here's gifts, and more gifts, and more gifts. I wonder, I wonder if Abram thought in his mind, or maybe uh, muttered a little bit under his breath, like you and I kind of do at times, when we say something like this, yeah, this plan's not going as I thought it was going to go. Yeah, this, this is not what I expected. Like we, we say that. And you, you can be assured of the fact that regardless, okay, of how many sheep or how many oxen or how many donkeys were given to Abram, he wanted his wife back more than anything else here. Thus the reason that what? God steps in and as a result, pain was afflicted. Plagues. We don't have a lot of description here. Plagues upon Pharaoh and his entire house. Perhaps, we don't know, maybe a foreshadowing generations later of what was to come. When, when apparently here, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, to look for things that aren't in the text, but it doesn't really look like Pharaoh did anything wrong. Not, not according to the information that he was given. In many ways, they were innocent bystanders. He's just like, it's, he's at the wrong place at the wrong time. Do, do you realize this? Such are the consequences of our own actions when we step outside of God's will for our lives. That's what happens to others who surround us in our disobedience, others suffer. Do, do you recall what we are, we, are, we are instructed to live like, how we are instructed to live? In 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that we are to be holy as he 
is holy. That means in all of our conversations, in all of our business dealings, in the way that we extend grace, mercy, and kindness, and gentleness, and patience, we're, we're, we're pursuing righteousness because what we reflect the one that has created us in his own image. He is holy. We are to be holy. And so we just kind of pause and step back from this. And what do we learn from this, like this, this text before us? Remember, number one, faithful obedience yesterday does not guarantee faithful obedience tomorrow. A lot of times it's like, I got this figured out. Look at, I got a track record here. And we kind of rest for a moment on some of our laurels. I was worshiping God last week. Yeah, that, that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be worshiping God next week. We don't rest on the past. Secondly, learn this, that in times of famine or times of hardship in our life can actually prove and test our faith. James speaks about this in James chapter 1. The testing of our faith actually produces steadfastness. So rather than running from or terrified of, we lean into this. How is it that God is actually going to what? Strengthen my faith as the midst, in the midst of. Thirdly, this, know that God remains in complete authority over everything, even when he's silent. And let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me just give you a little bit of heads up. God will be silent at times. In his perfect will for your life, there will be moments of deafening silence. Like, I'm praying, and I'm not hearing anything back. God is still in control. This past week we had a couple just, and you, you, you saw it, you were there. Like a couple gorgeous, clear nights in the night sky. And in and, and Psalm 147, it says what? He, he knows the number of the stars. We just like stare with our mouth open and he has placed them and named them. Galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy. He knows everything. Believe me. He knows the dry and weary land that you are in the midst of. He knows the heartache that you are feeling. And this is when we keep our eyes fixed on him. Which leads us to fourth and finally. See that Jesus Christ offered the ultimate solution to all the trouble and all the fear and all the hardship that we will ever face in our entire life. Yesterday I was preaching at a funeral and I was reminding people of the promise from Hebrews that says that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Do, do, do you remember what Jesus, who is the living water, said? When what? Yeah, there's a famine in the land. It's pretty obvious. It's dry and it's dusty and it's hot and it hurts. And I ache. Do you remember what Jesus, the living water, said? If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty. Yeah, that's me. And that may be you right now. Then Jesus says what? Let him come to me and drink. And you will never thirst again. 
I am so thankful that God in his perfect providence arranges and, and allows days like this to have the reminder, the ultimate reminder, just literally just laid out before us. Well, how is it that Jesus is the living water? How is it that we can go to him and, and drink from him that we will never, ever, ever thirst again, that we'll be totally safe and secure when we acknowledge what Jesus Christ has done for us? And that's what we do here regularly. Part of who we are as a gathered body of believers is that we celebrate the Lord's table together. Why? Because just life moves too fast for us. And it's going smooth and, and, and what? He's kind of in the rear view mirror until it's really, really bad. And then like, God, help me out on this one. And that's, that's not the way we're to live our life. We live our lives fixed. Our attention, our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how is that to happen? How, how could that happen? And, and Jesus knew. He made you. He knows what's in the depths of your heart. He created you, and he knew that we would very quickly and easily forget. And so he said, I'll give reminders. And that's exactly what Jesus did the very night that he was betrayed and, and what, arrested and, and falsely tried and ultimately crucified. Jesus had gathered in the upper room, it said, with his disciples. And I love those guys, but they were like you and I kind of clueless at times. Like they had it all right there. It was all right there. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. And we're like, I don't really know if he loves me. We're kind of clueless at times, kind of like them. And Jesus said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you something that I want you to remember you hold on to. You eat this, you drink this, and you stay rock solid in the faith of what it means to truly follow me. It says that Jesus took bread it was unleavened bread. It was flat. And he held it up in front of the disciples that were there in the upper room. And he, he broke the bread in front of them. And he said, hey, hey, pay attention. Look at this. As, as I'm breaking this bread, this is a picture of what's going to happen to my body. My body's going to be wrecked, broken for you. I, I, I would think that Jesus had their attention at that point. And he said, it doesn't end there. He said, as a matter of fact, and he took some wine and he poured it out into a glass. And he said, just as I poured this out, my blood is going to gush out. My blood will pour out. But there's hope and there's good news. He said, because my blood, in what it, in being the only one that is without blemish. We began with that. The only one is able to pay the price. And we know there has to be a price. There has to be a price paid for our sinfulness. The wages of sin are death. And Jesus said, no, I love you too much. I'm going to take your place. I'm going to die for you. So when you trust me, you can live in perfect peace. And they took the glass and they took a sip and they passed it around, took a sip and passed it around. And, and, and we know that what? When you touch something and you taste something and you see it and you smell it, 
what? Everything, everything is ignited. And we remember this. And that's what Jesus Christ wanted. So we do not ever, ever forget what he has done for us. And that's why what? As we gather together, we regularly remember the Lord's table. So that's what we're going to do this morning. If you are a believer, you've acknowledged the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Doesn't mean that you're perfect, but you understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that there's only one, and I've given my life to him. Then I invite you this morning, please, as this is offered to you, please come up and take this. And remember, don't ever forget what Jesus Christ has done for you. The greatest gift, the greatest sacrifice ever. If you're here this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus, it's kind of like, you know, I've heard it, I don't quite fully, then I would respectfully ask that, that you not take this, okay? No, no one's looking or watching. It, it's between you and the Lord. It would be almost silly for you to take it if you've not acknowledged the sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood for you. But I, I can assure you that in a moment of saying, I, I know that what? As we kind of mutter under our breath, this is not going the way that I thought it would go. That there's hope for you. It actually says in Scripture that today is the day of salvation. And maybe that's you this morning. Saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I confess my sin and I receive the gift that has been offered to me and to everyone here. And I want to follow you and know that what? Although I may live in fear, you are never, ever, ever outside of caring for me and loving me. And today, this could be the first time that you receive. And I invite you. I would, I would love for this to be the first day that you receive communion as a believer. I'm going to ask the elders and, and some of the, the deacons, men, there's different stations. If you have not been here before, the way that we do it is um, we just take a moment thanking the Lord in the quietness of our heart, preparing to receive this. Maybe the Lord reminds you that there's someone that you've got something against. You need to take some time. Maybe go to that person. As for forgiveness. There'll be different stations, and after a moment of just in quietness and in prayer, and, and there's an awkwardness to silence. I get it, but that's a good thing. The world is too busy, and we need moments like this to just stop and hear the Holy Spirit speak to us. After a moment or two of silence, I would just simply invite you to, to get up and to go to one of the stations, and the, the men will offer you the cup and the bread and and I would just ask so that because we're family, we eat together. Don't drink it right then. Take it to your seat. And we will together as a family bless it. And we will receive the communion table of the Lord together. May the Lord bless.
Thank you, my brothers. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, how, how we love you. And we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we, we confess that just like Abram, we, we run out ahead of you oftentimes. Like Peter, we take our eyes off of you. And we question and doubt and we suffer many times in fear. And yet you still show us your grace, your mercies new every morning and your love that is without fail. And we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this, this reminder that we have before us, the, the greatest demonstration of love ever. There's no greater love than one who lays down their life for another. And we thank you, Lord, that you offered your own son your own son to die to suffer to pay the price for my sin for our sin so that we can be in relationship with you we can be justified declared righteous in your sight thank you for that and now as we have this bread before us and this cup i would ask that you would bless it would renew our faith strengthen our faith and we keep our eyes our our affections and our attentions fixed on you. Bless this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Scriptures say that I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.